Well, Andrew preached the last sermon in 1 John 5, and many of you go, look, he finished 1 John 5. He got to the guard yourself from idols. Why are you going back to it? It certainly is nothing to correct anything from that sermon. I want to encourage you guys, go back and read that sermon. Go back and hear it, rather. It's on the website. Um, It was a great sermon. If you weren't here last week, you need to go back and hear it because it's a call not only to guard ourselves, but the the encouragement to guard ourselves is this great promise of eternal life. And that's, that's kind of how this gospel or this book of John ends. In many ways, the book of John seems to be repetitive, right? Because it wasn't the first time we had heard that we had been gifted with eternal life. John had already said that before. I don't know how old you are. I don't know if you found yourself repeating yourself already. I don't know if you start your stories with your peers or with your children. Stop me if I've said this before, but, and I want you to know that's not what's going on with 1 John. John isn't repeating himself as if he he has forgotten what he said. It is rather as if John is taking your face and saying, I don't know if you heard me clear enough the first time. I want to tell you this again because it's so important. And I want to highlight two words out of this passage that are so important for us. Both words that you've already heard, okay? Beloved and little children. You can see them right there. Beloved is in verse 1. Little children is in verse 4. But I want you to see that John is grabbing your face. And he is not saying, stop me if I've said this. But he is saying, listen. I've said this before, but it doesn't bother me to say it again. Hmm, sounds familiar. If you've read enough of of Paul, he says the same thing. I'm going to repeat to you, and I don't mind repeating to you what I've already told you before. It's no problem for me, and it's for your good. And in many ways, John does the same thing. Here's the theme, jumping into this, and then I want to show you two things. The theme is this. The facts that you, church, and I'm using plural, You all, church, the fact that you all are beloved by God and that you are empowered children of God, this fact is absolutely necessary for faith and life. Let me say it one more time. The fact that you, church, are both beloved by God and that you are empowered children of God are absolutely necessary for faith and for life. I want to show you how John demonstrates that by using words that he has used before, but as he grabs us by the face and says, listen, first of all, it's this word beloved. And what is he trying to show us in beloved? And then we're going to see what is he showing us in calling us little children. Verse 1 says this, beloved, do not believe every spirit But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is here not calling us his beloved. All right? There is a place earlier in the letter where John says, my little children. And he takes this possessive pronoun. He says, you are my little children. John takes the role of pastor in the lives of the flock. I want you to know one of the things that I've thought most about as I have read this book countless times this summer, as I have thought and prayed for you, even as over a month's time I tried to forget about you, and don't don't mistake that, I did try to forget about you while I was gone. When I thought about you, I didn't call you and I didn't text you, I prayed for you and then went on with whatever it was. 
What I've learned through 1 John is the heart of a pastor for his people. John's heart is great. But here, John is building on something that he has begun sharing over and over in this passage. And Andrew mentioned it in his sermon when he said that one of his favorite verses in 1 John was 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And I think, I haven't talked to Andrew about it, but I think Andrew is so excited about what that is that we will be when Jesus returns. What will it be to be a glorified human being who doesn't struggle with sin and anxiety and fear anymore, but who finds themselves in the presence of their creator whole and complete Well, if you read the verse that comes right before that, listen to what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's a great verse. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. In the ninth verse of chapter 4, you can read it right there, and it says, this is the love of God. And this, excuse me, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, remember, the wrath absorber for our sins. John is telling us, One of the truths that I want you to cling to, church, is that you are beloved by God. He says it so emphatically that he says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, John isn't saying that the church gathered and there were demonic spirits that came flying in the windows and and spirits from heaven that came flying in the windows and those spirits were audible and they were speaking. He is talking about the spirits of the heart's of those who were prophets and claimed to have prophetic voices of who God is and who we are as human beings before the church. Now remember, we've already seen in chapter 2 that John said that there are those who were part of the church that left the church, that left the teaching of the church, that denied what the church proclaimed about who Jesus was and began to talk about other realities who began to make other truth claims. And John is saying, look, the gift of the Spirit has been given to you, chapter 3, verse 24, just proceeding from this. And then he says, but don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. He says, test the hearts of those who make truth claims. Children, the idea is this, that when we speak and we speak words and we say, reality is this, those words come from a specific understanding of the way the world works. If you think about it like a computer, a computer generates things from the hardware that wires it, right? And John is saying, test their hearts. Test the hardware. Test the core from where that conviction of truth comes from. Test it. He says that deception is real. He obviously says that it's possible to be deceived. He says that in another place, I don't want you to be deceived. He says, but test the spirits and to see whether they are from God. He says that many false prophets, those who claim to know who God is, have gone out. 
Well, one of the most natural things to say is, well, what's the test? We have folks who in this congregation have either just taken or who are about to take the driving test. And to take a test to get ready to drive, you have to pass a written test. And it would be good to know what's on that test, right? Where's the booklet? We'll go to MassDMV, download it, and start studying it. You know what the test is going to be. John is almost that plain for us here, isn't he? He says in verse 2 what the test is. By this you know the Spirit of God. Well, this is good. This is the test. This is great. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the test. What is the test of testing spirits? Of testing the truth claims that are made. You see, this early church had folks leaving who said Jesus wasn't who he said he was. In fact, Jesus was just a created being and, and God may have come upon him, but he wasn't God. And John said, that's no good. You've got to test and see what they say. And the test is that Jesus is the Christ. In chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God? And if we had time, we could go through the Old Testament and demonstrate that is God's king the Davidic king, the one who would come and set his people free. And the amazing reason why Jesus himself needs to be the Christ who came in the flesh is because God dealt with our sin in becoming a human being and dying on the cross for us. Jesus is the litmus test. Children, you all know already what litmus test is, right? When you're trying to determine the acid and the base of a solution and you take a strip of paper and you dip it in and depending on what color it turns, you know whether it's an acid or a base. This is the same idea. John is saying, this is how you're going to know if you can trust what people tell you about me. Do they confess that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh? That's what he said. Now, it's an obvious question, or it's a reasonable question to say, why is this the litmus test? You know, people often ask me before they attend Christ the King Church Newton, hey, what's your view on human sexuality? Because if your view on human sexuality differs from my view on human sexuality, I don't have anything to do with your church. You don't want to know what the second greatest one is? What's your view on gender distinction? Because if your view on gender distinction isn't my view on gender distinction, don't, I'm not interested in attending your church. I talked to somebody from St. Mary's this week who was you know, involved in the search process of finding a new rector for St. Mary's. And I just was asking, how's it going? And she quickly offered me what is the biggest test for her with regard to a minister. John is telling his people here, I want you to know the test that I want you to give those who make claims about who God is or about who you are. And that test is this. Do they confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God who has come in the flesh? Why is that the litmus test? Because Jesus is the full measure of God's love for you. 
It is that clear. Jesus is the full measure of God's love for you. In Christ coming as God's Messiah, anointed by His Spirit, in His taking on our sin, dying on the cross, our death, and defeating death. See, He's perfect. And so when He gave Himself, He paid the price. And His payment was infinite. Thus, death is defeated. He was raised again from the dead by the Father. And John is saying, this is true. And anyone who claims to tell you anything about God or about you as a human being, the test I want you to ask them is, what do they believe about Jesus? Because in Christ, we see the identity, not only the heart of the Father, but we also see the identity of who we are. And listen, church, I told you that there is one of two truths that John gives us here. And the first is that you are beloved of the Father. How do you know this? It's not because of anything you did. 1 John 4, 9 says that it's not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. That we are the beloved. You see, the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist denies this. Denies that this is who Jesus is. Now, it's interesting, he says, the spirit of the Antichrist you heard is coming, right? Not only does Jesus talk about the, the abomination of desolation that will exist at the end of time, but Paul also talks about the one who will raise up and draw people away from the church. This spirit of the Antichrist, this, this character that is part of the end of time that is still pretty mysterious, both referenced in the Old and the New Testament, though. But he is saying the spirit of that Antichrist is already present among those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And why is he so serious about that denial? Because to deny that Jesus is the Christ is to deny the core identity of the Father as a God who is merciful and a God who is just a God who is gracious, a God who is compassionate, a God who forgives sins, but who, a God who doesn't let sins go unpunished. You begin to go, oh, that sounds like God defining himself in Exodus 34. That's exactly right. You see, here are the implications of this for you, church, that your focus is on Jesus and not on anything else. Do you want to know what will set you free? What will set you free is for your focus to not be on yourself, but to be on Christ. Look, you want more than anything to know you're loved. And you'll do anything that you can to be convinced of that. But here, in this identity of beloved, you finally get to rest. Beloved of God. And it's kind of interesting. I looked up what are the names in the Bible that mean beloved of God. Do you know who's named beloved of God? David's son, Solomon. 
the offspring of David and Bathsheba, not the one who died at birth, but their second child, Solomon. Nathan the prophet said to David, your son's name is Jedidiah. And that name means beloved of God, for he will be a man who is a man at rest. I would love to ask you to raise your hands. Don't worry, I'm not going to. Don't worry, I'm not putting you out there. Ask you to raise your hands and say, I would love to be a woman or a man at rest. I would love for my heart to be at rest, to not be so overwhelmed by the circumstances of this life. This implication of beloved is exactly that, the opportunity to rest. And do you know what it goes on to do for us? The application of this is that we have to be aware of who our counselors are. Look, I'm not saying that you can't find good human wisdom outside of other Christians. You certainly can. And that points to the graciousness of God who causes wisdom and grace to fall on all humanity. You can find a lot of great counsel on what it means to be a human being. But there is limits, Christians, to who you can get counsel from. And it really comes down to this. At the bottom of your heart, the questions that you're asking have to do with who is God and who am I? Because if you allow circumstances to dictate your understanding of God's love for you, you're going to be lost. Jesus dictates that. Jesus does that. At the very core, Christian, you are different because of your worship, your prayer, and even your wisdom. Listen, what are the implications of this if you're not a Christian? If you're here and you go, man, I just don't know if I get it. The implications of this that Paul wants you to, or that John wants you to know, is that your opinion of who Jesus is matters everything. Who do you say Jesus is? Don't have any other litmus test for Christianity. No social or cultural norm or pressure. Ask yourself, who do I believe Jesus to be? And I want you to know, those of you who have yet to determine about Christ, what is on offer for you is God's love for you before you do anything to deserve it. I was with one of you this week and trying to determine, do I go back to work or not back to work? Oh, I've got to go back to work because I've got to work hard because it's going to depend on my bonus, right? That's the way we think, right? It's just the way we think. It's natural. It makes sense, right? We work hard, we get a review, and we hope to get a bonus. Gospel's upside down. Gospel's the other way around. You get the bonus first, beloved of God. And that bonus changes everything about your life. Man, I would love to go for another 20 minutes and talk to you about this empowered children of God. It's connected to beloved. I'm going to give you three minutes. I'm going to give it to you for three minutes. I want you to see that John doesn't just say beloved here, but in verse 2 he says little children. He has said little children in the past. He said my little children once before. But here he is building off this reality that God 
has loved us and has made us his children. John has written this before in the Gospel of John, the first chapter and the 12th verse. He says, to all who have believed in him, he has been given the right to become children of God, not by human decision, but by the power of God himself. And he is saying, look, church, not only are you beloved, but you are an empowered child of God. It is from God, the act of God. And God empowers you because he has overcome the world. He's greater than the spirit who is in the world. How is it that you're empowered? Because the same spirit, that spirit of God is in you and me. It's in us. We are empowered children of God. What does that empowerment enable us to do? What are the implications of that? I would love to flesh these out. I'm going to give them to you. It frees us to speak. Notice that these verses talk about how people respond to us when we proclaim to who Jesus is. To be an empowered child of God allows you to speak. Have you ever been so afraid that you can't even speak? Have you ever been so afraid of the future that you wouldn't even know what to say? You see, to be an empowered child of God, God who has overcome the spirit of the Antichrist, who in Christ has definitively said, Satan, you say that I don't care about these people. Proof! I do! I sent Jesus. I have overcome Sin and death in Christ frees us to speak. Confidence when we're accepted. People hear us and and, and they accept us. Those who are from God hear us when we speak. And the expectation that there will be rejection. That's what these verses say. The implication is that we are free to speak. We have confidence when we're accepted. And we have the expectation that we will be rejected. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, look, I'm telling you how hard it's going to be so that you won't fall away. John is telling us in this letter as if he is parroting Jesus. He's certainly saying, look, these are the words of Jesus that matter to you. The world's going to reject your claim that I'm the Christ. And that's okay. I've overcome the world. And listen, Christians, this has motivated Christians from all time. The one that came to mind for me was Athanasius because apparently on his tombstone, and I don't know this to be true, apparently it says Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. Because when he lived in the fourth century, there was, uh, there, was, there was a heresy that Jesus wasn't the eternal son of God, that Jesus was created. And Athanasius fought against that. And even Constantine the emperor banished Athanasius at one point because he wouldn't forgive the guy that that still held to the reality that Jesus was something other than what the scriptures say. Ultimately, Athanasius seemed like he was the only one that was standing up for who Jesus was. And here, John says, don't be afraid when you get into opposition. Don't be afraid to speak. Don't be afraid of that. Listen, Christian, here's your application of that reality. When the reality of Jesus, rather than the present sufferings, define God's love and the source of his empowerment, 
then the areas of your suffering can become venues that bear great truth to God's glory and to your own good. One more time, the reality of Jesus rather than the present suffering in your life defines God's love for you and the source of his empowerment in you, then the areas of your suffering can become venues that will bear fruit to God's glory so that others will see you and go, yes, I see that she's weak, but she claims Christ. And Jesus is made strong in her life. My question is this. Do we remind each other of this? Do we speak to each other? that Jesus is the king? Do we respond with hope and expectation when someone shares to us the struggles that you're going through? First thing you need to remember, Jesus is Christ. Second thing you need to remember, beloved of God. Third thing you need to remember, you are an empowered child. For the non-Christian, what is the implication of this? Without mincing any words, I want you to know Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king, and he will make himself known as such. It doesn't so much mean to be a threat as much as a reality. And ultimately, this means that Jesus can overcome your unbelief, non-Christian. He can overcome your unbelief. And he's the kind of God that is willing to do that. Every story of Jesus points to that. I heard it said this week, that a picture is worth a thousand words, but an experience is worth a thousand pictures. The quote at the front of the bulletin said, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. Listen to this. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship. If you want to hear what that is, go back and listen to Matt Owen's sermon on the end of July. Excellent sermon. But he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of it. My family had a lot of experiences over vacation. There were thousands of pictures that are taken, but I want you to know that none of those pictures would replace the actual experience of the things that happened. I want you to know that what is on offer for you and me is the experience of knowing that we are beloved and empowered children of God. The promise that Jesus says, it says, listen, if you pray for the Holy Spirit, I will give it to you. And I want you to be bold as you come to this table that the Spirit would be given, that we would be convinced that we are beloved and empowered children of God. Pray with me.